I'll tell you, the, the greatest thing, the most loving thing I can do for anyone is to share the gospel. And, and that's what we're going to attempt to do today. As we close out this series of messages, here in Second Peter, we're going to chapter 3 again today. We're in verses 11 through 18. And we're going to close out this series of messages on Jesus. He is worthy of our devotion. Uh, this completes uh, what we're going to attempt to share out of this book for some time. I, I don't know when we'll come back to it. I'm sure we will. And I ask that you be praying for me uh, in the next few days as we seek God's face for a new direction. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, Michael Combs, as you will remember, he recorded a song several years ago. The song is titled, I'll Be Back. The song references the fact that Jesus left heaven with the confidence that he's going back to heaven. It also references that Jesus is proclaiming to his disciples that he would be betrayed, condemned, and crucified, but he'd be back. It continues by referencing the fact that he conquered death, hell, and the grave. And he's coming back. And the last phrase or the last verse and chorus, it references the fact that Jesus will come back to receive his church. As a matter of fact, the closing verse and chorus goes, uh, states something like this. Then one day on a hillside, as Jesus rose up in the clouds, the words he spoke came flooding back to some young men in the crowd. He said, I go to prepare a place, but I'll be back again. I'm going to take you to a land where joy shall never end. But I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be gone for a little while, but one day I'm coming back. I'll be back. Oh, I hope you're ready to meet me, church, because one day I'm coming back. I'll be back. Christians, don't lose faith because I'll be back. Oh, this is a lot of what we've heard over the last few weeks <laughs> that Jesus is coming back. And I thank God for the confidence that we have that Jesus is coming back. How many believe he's coming back? He's coming back. Whether we believe it or not, he's coming back. Whether we're here when he comes or not, he's coming back. Whether we're busy doing things that, that this world would have us to be doing, He's coming back. No matter what the scoffers say, he's coming back. No matter if we're ready or not, he's coming back. And we can have confidence that he's coming back. And because we know he will return, he's worthy of our devotion. Wouldn't you say that? He's worthy of our devotion. This text, it shares, it helps us to see this. Uh, as we look in verses 11 through 18 in chapter 3 of Second Peter, he says, Therefore, <coughs> since all these things will be dissolved, 
What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt the fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them, of these things in which we, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away from the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. God, we thank you. We thank you that you loved us so much to send your only begotten son, to leave the splendor of heaven to come to this sin-cursed world, to give his life so that we could have a right to the tree of life. God, to bleed and die for us, to raise from the grave, conquering death, hell, and the grave to give us hope of a better day. God, leaving us the promises coming back. God, we just thank you for loving us so much. Now, God, we pray that, that you would just speak to us throughout this message, that whatever is said, that God, you would fix and form and fashion it in the hearts of each one that is here. God, you speak to the people throughout this congregation. And God, we'll praise you for what you do in their lives. Now, God, have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> you know, this passage, it opens up with this phrase, therefore says all these things will be dissolved. Now, I don't know how your mind works when you read passages such as this, but I can share with you how mine works. When I saw this, I began to wonder, what are all these things? Well, then I have to look for all these things, and, I, and we find it there in verse 10. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, when we get to wondering what are all these things, 
It seems that the writer is speaking of the heavens and we're not talking about the heaven where God dwells. We're talking about the heavens as we can see within the, within our natural eye, the heavens that we can look up to and we can, we can see where the sunlight is shining. We can see where the, the stars are and, and all up through the galaxies and the heavens. That is what the scripture is references at this point. It's also referencing the work, the earth and the works of the earth as being all these things. Because the Bible is saying that because of the way the heavens are and because of the way the earth is and all the works of the earth, the way all of these things are happening, uh, they become all these things that are going to be melted away with a fervent heat. Here Peter's telling us that the heavens and the earth will be destroyed because of the works of the earth. The works of the earth are simply sin and the evilness of man. It is the sin and the evilness of man that has made the earth so corrupt that it's beyond repair. And instead of repairing this broken world, God's going to destroy it. And now this should not knowing that God's going to destroy this earth should not be motivation for us to live as we please for as long as we can. Instead, knowing that this is going to take place should be motivation for us to be aware of our conduct as well as motivation for us to take caution until the return of the Lord. Now, when we look in this passage, Peter helps us to, to see just this. He helps us to see where our motivation should be put in. And it should be put in our conduct as we begin to see here that the conduct of the believers till Jesus returned. Peter is telling us this is what the conduct of believers should look like. Jesus is coming to earth, coming to earth again. And since he's coming back, we who are believers must live holy and godly lives. As, as a matter of fact, King James states that all our behavior should be holy and godly. So family, every area of our lives should be influenced by the example of the, the Holy One. Should be influenced by the greatest example that's ever walked the face of the earth. And no, it's not Billy Graham. No, it's not Michael Cummings. No, it's not Hilton Woodhill. But it's Jesus Christ. He's the greatest example that ever walked the face of this earth. And the example that he left with us, he demonstrated a life that was filled with holiness, filled with godliness while on earth. Demonstrating a holy life. It's simply to live in such a way that our behavior is sanctified. Now, to be sanctified, it means to be separate. It means to be different. It means to be set apart. And here what he is saying is that our lives should be set apart to God. Well, we're different. We're a peculiar people. And when the world sees a Christian, they should see somebody different than they are. They should see people who are, who are a little different. We may look like them. We may have the same color of skin as they have. We may have the same color of hair they have. We may be just... We may have as little bit of hair as, who, as what they have. But we, we, there should be something different in the way that we live our lives. The servant Moses, through him, God told the children of Israel in Leviticus 11 and 45, for I am the Lord who brings you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, be different, be set apart 
for I am holy. You know, the, you know, the interesting thing about that is God says, because he's holy, we should be holy. If God is our father and we are his children, shouldn't we resemble our father in some way? I, I resemble my father in a lot of ways. I remember growing up that, that when, I be, when I became a teenager and had a little bit of weight on my body, I didn't have as much as I got now, but I had some weight on my body. When I, I would walk in the house, mama couldn't tell the difference between me or daddy at, um, when, I, when I became an older teenager because she didn't know... We walked just alike. We, there was some, so much resemblance in us that, that she couldn't tell the difference. As I get older and the way my hair turned gray, it resembled daddy more than it did mama for some people. There were some things that stood out about me that reminded people of my dad. And I think that's the way it should be for all of us when we're thinking spiritually. That there should be something about our lives that remind everyone else about the God that we serve. Amen. In 2 Corinthians 7 and 1, Paul stated, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of all flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And the Hebrew writer went as far as to say in 12 and 14 that we are to pursue peace with all people and holiness for without which no one will see the Lord. So without holiness, without being set apart, how can we expect to see him? If our life is, lives are no different than the way they were before we profess Christ, chances are we don't possess him. Amen. There should be something different about our lives. Our conduct till the return of Christ should be an example of holiness, but it should also be an example of godliness. Demonstrating a godly life is to be Christ-like. There's no one else that ever walked the face of the earth more godly than Jesus Christ. So it would, it would make sense that we would follow his example. And if we're following his example, then we would want to live Christ-like. Bearing the name Christian, we should want to live as Christ lived. This is to live, on, live as Christ lived on earth. How did he live on earth? He walked in the spirit. When he walked in the spirit, he produced fruit. In other words, there was evidence of him walking in the spirit. Because when people encountered Jesus while he walked the dusty roads of Jerusalem, what they noticed was a life of joy, love, peace, long-suffering. He was kind. He was good. He was faithful. He walked in gentleness and self-control. This is the life that he walked and We are called as, as born-again Christians to walk in this life. And it will be evident in our lives when we are walking in the spirit. Family, when we look at the life of Paul, what we find is Paul wasn't a perfect man. But if we are going to get close to a human example outside of Christ, it would almost be Paul. But Paul was not perfect. And I, I, I haven't read where God's called us to be perfect. If you find that in the scripture where he's called us to be perfect, please help me out with that. But I've never found that in scripture. He's called us to be holy, set apart. He's called us to be godly, Christ-like. He ain't called me to be Jesus. He hasn't called you to be Jesus. Listen, unsaved, I, I want to get this myth out of your mind right now. God has a, is a calling you right now and expecting you to live a sinless life. What he's expecting you to do is trust him with your life. 
What we, Paul was not a perfect man. As a matter of fact, the Bible describes Paul as a zealous man. He loved God so that he burned with passion to defend God. That was his passion, to defend God. And when, we, when he thought about Christians, early on in his life, he thought Christians were intent on turning people away from God, especially the Jewish people. So what he thought they were, they were turning uh, Jewish people into a false religion, so he set out to persecute and to imprison as many Christians as he could for God. However, while traveling on the Damascus Road, with letters justifying him to gather Christians that were in the synagogues in Damascus, binding them and bringing them to Jerusalem, Paul met Jesus. A blinding light caused Paul to fall on the ground and he heard the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? And his Lord said, I am Jesus. Here Paul meets Jesus, his life is forever changed. He being a scholar of the Old Testament scriptures after, and after spending three years isolated in, in Arabia, we learn, he learned the truth and he gained a new perspective on righteous living. He come to understand that the Old Testament writings, they testified of Jesus Christ. And because of this, Paul became zealous, looking for preaching and teaching about the new heavens and the new earth, which was, which is where righteousness dwells. And I want to tell you, we can't, we can't fix our lives on this earth. We can't fix our lives and what's going on around us. We have to fix our heart and our mind on what's before us. And what's before us is a place where all righteousness dwells, a place where there be no more corruption. A place where there be no more death and die. A place where there be no more sickness. A place where evil won't, won't uh, be able to reside there. A place where there's no more sin. Paul became zealous about living a life called out that's Christ-like. He was intent on living a life of holiness and godliness. Why? Because Paul found Jesus to be worthy of his devotion. I think we should all step back from time to time. I think we should all do a self-evaluation from from time to time. We should wonder if our conversion experience has left this kind of impact on us. No, we may not have gone away in isolation for... For three years, but our, our lives should have changed so that, that we began being set apart for the Lord. So that we became zealous and passionate about living Christ-like. Family, uh, the only way you and I can be Christ-like is that we walk in the Spirit. So I wonder for myself from time to time when people walk away after being in my presence, do they, do they see any fruit of me living Christ-like? Have they noticed that I, I have a joyous presence or am I down in the dumps? Do they see that I've learned to be content in whatever situation I'm in or do they see me unsatisfied? Do they see me being patient and kind or am I allowing my temper to get the best of me? Do they hear me speaking gently or am I aggressive and angry and out of control? I want to remind us Jesus is coming back and we must be diligent we must be intentional to live at peace with Christ and with others. We must seek to live in holiness and godliness. He is calling us to live set apart from this world. He's calling us to follow his example 
And our conduct should show the world that Jesus, he's worthy of our devotion. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree that it's as a believer that the world should see holiness in our lifestyle? I'm not talking about you wearing, ladies, you having to wear dresses down to your ankles and Men, you're having to have long sleeves and not being able to wear jewelry. And women, you can't wear makeup or cut your hair. That's not the holiness I'm talking about. That's fabricated stuff. I'm talking about our lives being set apart and people um, being around us and being in our company knows that we're living our lives for Christ and not the cares of the world. And I remember... There are those who say they're living Christ-like and they walk around with their heads hung low. They walk around like they've been defeated. They walk around like, like, like they've lost their best puppy. I, I don't know what's wrong with them, but, but the Lord, he never walked around that way. The Bible teaches us about him going to a wedding and he dancing and he, he, he just enjoying himself. We don't find anywhere in scripture where Jesus is down in the dumps. As a matter of fact, he was still encouraging people when he was being pushed up Calvary's hill. When they nailed him to a cross, he wasn't crying and he wasn't angry, but he was crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When God said, I won't take this cup from you, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Man, our lives can feel like they're in shambles, but I want to promise you, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, there is a better day coming. No matter what it looks like in this world. He's worthy of our devotion. But let's not just stop there. Let's, let's, let's look at the caution that Peter shares that we as believers should have till his return. Peter shares that our conduct should be that of godliness and holiness. But he tells us that we should be cautious also. Peter seems to want us to understand that while we're looking forward to Jesus' return and all that's going to come with it, that we need to consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. You who are saved today, aren't you glad he's long-suffering? How about if he would have came the day before you got saved? You know, every day that Jesus is waiting, that's another day, another opportunity for your loved ones and my loved ones to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It appears Peter wouldn't have us to be fretted about Christ's delay. While sin is growing rampant and the wickedness of men, women, boys, and girls may seem to be out of control, we must keep in mind God is in control. He's still holding the reins and we, we must not be discouraged at his delay because he's providing an opportunity for those that you're crying for, those that you're weeping for, those that you're calling out for to be saved. Family, there have been, there is now, and there, there always will be scoffers. Those who laugh at, deny, and reject, <coughs> and they ridicule the coming again of Jesus Christ. They call it foolishness. As a matter of fact, 
Paul picks up on this in, in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says in verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It, it, down in verse 21, he says, for since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. But it pleased God through the foolishness of the message that was preached to save those who believe. In verse 25, he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what the world calls foolish, God is using it for his glory and for our good. It's foolish for them to think that, that God would, would come from heaven and, and put on earthly flesh and he'd walk the dusty roads of, of Jerusalem and he'd live a sinless life here and he'd be beat, he'd be ridiculed, he'd be nailed to an old rugged cross and he'd give his life for someone that he knew would turn their back on him. But he did for those who were spitting at him, for those who swung that strap of, of nine tails, for those who who pushed him up Galgotha's hill for those that nailed him to the cross and suspended him between heaven and earth for each one of them he gave his life and whether we realize it or acknowledge it at some point it was us it was us beating him cursing him spitting on him nailing him to the cross it was your sin and my sin oh but thanks be to God that the scoffers are wrong. They're saying that if he's coming back, it would seem that he would have come back a long time ago. But I thank God he is long-suffering, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And if you're here today and you're far from God, make no mistake, God loves you and he cares for you. He desires that you would be saved. He knows that the day his son, our savior, Jesus Christ returns and receives his church that you that have not received Jesus as your Lord and savior and are not part of his church, that you will be left behind and you'll be separated from God for all eternity. And if he comes for you in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day, or even in the early mornings, and you haven't received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you'll be eternally separated from God. Oh, he loves you so much that he's long-suffering. He's still pleading still giving you an opportunity to come to know his son is your savior. The apostle Paul agreed with Peter on this issue. As a matter of fact, Peter goes as far as to say that Paul himself, when he wrote, he wrote in a deeper, he wrote deeper theologically. He, he looked there in verse 16, what he says. And also all, also in all these epistles, speaking in them of these things in which some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also rest 
the rest of the scriptures. In other words, Paul's writings have, have gotten to a point to where if we don't really diligently study the scriptures, we're going to miss it. And there are those who don't have, don't care about studying the scriptures. You know what? One, one preacher I heard him last week, he made the statement and he goes something like this. Any, any preaching without devotion to study is no more than a desire for performance. Somebody should have shouted. If a preacher, if all he cares about is getting in the pulpit and declaring some words and moving people's through song or, or through some sort of action, you know why I stay behind the pulpit more than I'm away from the pulpit? Because I don't want the performance of preaching to outweigh the message of the preacher. And there's some that will run the aisles, they'll run the pews, they'll do everything they can and never share the gospel because they're too sorry to study the scriptures. Now, you may say I'm being mean, but now, hey, I, I spend too much time in here to have any appreciation for any man that'll stand back here without spending time in the Word of God. It don't get easier as you go. It takes more work as you go. I thought when I went to divinity school that I'd be able to put message together in just an hour or two. I spend more time preparing now than I ever did. And each week, it seems to be the case. We got too many preachers around wanting God to just drop it out of heaven and God will, but we've got to be in the word of God. If we're not in God's word, we're not gonna know what his word says. He won't bring to our remembrance what we haven't already heard or what we haven't already read. Oh, I didn't mean to say none of that. It's not in my notes. But you, many of you, you know exactly what we're talking about. You've heard, you, you know exactly what Peter is saying here when he's speaking about Paul's writings being so deep that the unlearned and the, or, 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 the, or those who are untaught, how does he, how does he phrase it here? In, in verse 16, he says, unstable. You know, it don't take a genius to study the scriptures. Listen, I want to tell you, if I got a master's degree in, in, in Christian education, anybody with a college degree can get one. All you got to do is be willing to do the work. You don't have to be smart. I'm not that smart. But what I am, I am convinced that the word of God is the truth. Amen. And we can find the truth in the word of God if we we'll seek it. And here Paul says those who are unstable. Now I'm a lot of things, but now I'm not foolish. I am stable. Now there's coming a day when I may be a little foolish. There come, there's coming a day when I may not know your names. I may not know my child's name. I don't know what the Lord has in store for me. But I know right now, I'm stable enough to know that this is the truth. Yeah, Paul, Paul Peter is speaking about those who try to preach and teach what they don't understand. And what they do, in effect, is twist the scriptures to fit what would work in their own lives. They would rather the scriptures fit them than them fit the scriptures. You know, <laughs> I, I'll never forget, and I've shared this with you before. When, when, I, when I came here, I, I, you hadn't even voted on me as the pastor yet. I think I was working as the interim. And preacher James looked at me and he said, son, 
Don't go there and make the people fit you. You go there and fit the people. (laughs) What he meant was don't go there and try to change the people. Be who you are and let God work the people. Let God use you and let God work the people. Come in here and not try to tear everything up to get what I want. Instead, follow God and do what God wants us to do. And I think when we got too many who will read the scriptures and we try to make the scripture fit our lives. When the purpose of the scripture is for us to read it, take it in so we fit our lives to the scriptures. And when we fit our lives to the scriptures, our lives change. The scripture's not changing, folks. It's the same today, yesterday, and forever. Heaven and earth may pass away, but the word of God is going to stand. The flower fades, the the grass withers, but the the word of God stands forever. I got to get away from this. I got to get away from this. They, they want to just twist the scriptures to fit their own life. For an example, when Paul teaches on justification by faith, he's clear. He's very clear that we can't earn justification. But our justification is based solely on faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's based upon us believing the gospel of Jesus. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation. However, many have twisted this teaching along with Paul's teaching on Christian liberty to say that it's okay to be saved and live like the devil. They twist the teaching to say that, that we have, we've been given a license to live as we want to live because we live by faith. Well, family, if I ever, if I ever twist the scriptures in such a way, you'll do yourself a favor and you'll do me a favor to just get rid of me. Get me out of this place and get me committed somewhere because I'll have to be lost my mind. I'm telling you the truth. I am convinced that if we have a personal relationship with God, that we won't want to live any kind of way. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior at the very moment, not six months later, not six years later, but at that very moment, the Holy Spirit becomes alive inside of us. And when he becomes alive in us, he becomes active within us. He is abiding. He is controlling. He is guiding. He is directing. He is comforting. He is encouraging. But family, I want us to understand he's also convicting. We can't belong to God and willfully sin against God and not experience the power of the convicting spirit of God. Deuteronomy 8 and 5 says, You shall know in your heart that as man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Hebrews 12 and 6 says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. In other words, if you get out of line with God, God's going to let you know that he is aware of you being out of line with him. 1 Peter 4 and, uh, 4 and 17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. And that is the judgment for us, that God will chasten us. I'm so glad I'll face my judgment here on earth and I won't face it in heaven. I don't know about you, but I won't stand in judgment in, in glory. 
I'm going to stand at the Bema seat of Christ and I'm going to be rewarded. Now, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to shed some tears at that seat. I'm sure I'm going to see rewards God intended for me to have. But because of my disobedience, because of my lack of faith, God, they're going to burn up in the fire when they're tested. But, but there are some rewards that I'll receive and, and I'll be able to place them down at the feet of Jesus. But those of you who stand at the great white throne, it won't be a rewarding time. That'll be a judging time. Where your name not being found in the Lamb's book of life, you will hear him say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Peter warns those of us who are believers. He warns us to remain steadfast in the scriptures so that we aren't led away by any wind of doctrine. The more we remain steadfast in the scriptures, the more God's going to reveal his truth of the scriptures. The more he reveals his truth of his scriptures, the more we realize that Jesus, he's worthy of our devotion. And how many would say he's worthy of my devotion? Oh, he is worthy. I don't know about you. He's been good to me. When I wasn't good to me, I wasn't good to him or anyone else. He was good to me. I'm so glad he's been good to me. He's worthy of our devotion. Matthew Henry said this. We must grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Follow on to know the Lord. Labor to know him more clearly and more fully. To know more of Christ so as to be more like him and to love him better. This is the knowledge of Christ the Apostle Paul reached after, after and desired to attain. Such a knowledge of Christ as conforms us more to him and will preserve us from falling off in times of apostasy. And those who experience the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will give thanks and praise to him and join with our Apostle in saying to him, be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen. When we grow in the knowledge of Christ, <coughs> we can say as the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, 8 and 11, yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want to be able to say that I've come to believe as the apostles Peter and Paul Jesus is worthy of our devotion Paul was saying he is so worthy that everything I had attained prior to knowing him is nothing folks he is so worthy of your devotion that you can't gain anything in this world that would take precedence over knowing Jesus Christ is your Savior. You can't gain enough money. 
You can't gain enough prestige. You can't gain enough education, popularity, or position that is greater than knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The greatest thing you'll ever do is follow him because he'll change your life. With every head bowed, every eye closed, is there one today that's willing to say, I'm ready. I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. I'm ready to give him all my devotion, all my love, all my heart. Would you come? Would you come? Or would you simply pray, God, I'm tired of running. I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And your Son, Jesus Christ, is the Savior of the world. He died for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. Cast my sins as far as the east is from the west. Thank you, God, for forgiving me. And I receive your Son as my Lord and Savior. Oh, thank you, God, for loving me so much to make me part of your family. Now help me, help me to live my life in a manner that would be pleasing to you. Help me to grow in my conduct for you to become more set apart and more Christ-like. Help me, God, to focus my attention on your return Thank you for saving me.